For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by recently retired faculty member Joe Forte. This interview is conducted by college archivist Christina Kasman. Before we start, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue to find our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians or using our sewing machine or 3D printer. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for joining us. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with all of your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. Um, so welcome. For the purposes of the tape, I'm going to do an introduction. This is Christina Kassman, the college archivist. The date is July 25th, 2023. I'm here with Joseph Forte, um, retired faculty member Professor Emeritus at Sarah Lawrence yeah, College. <laughs> they finally, they, when they kicked me out, they gave me a title. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's the dream. The dream has achieved. Um, so, can you give us a sketch where you were yeah. born, what you remember of your life before coming to SLC? How did you get from where you started to Sarah Lawrence College? Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me to do this. And uh, most importantly, thank Sarah Lawrence College for having, giving, having given me a 45-year career in a, in a place I love. Um, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I was born in an Italian-American family, tight-knit Italian-American family. I lived in the house with my aunt and my grandmother and grandfather. My grandfather owned the house, and it was because he did. Uh, my family, actually, my father was, at least for a while, a kind of skilled but nonetheless manual laborer who never finished high school. And uh, we, did, we lived pretty well because my grandfather owned the house. We didn't pay rent. And my mother, um, my mother, like many, many mothers, I think, of children at that point in time, post-war, 1948, I was born, uh, were ambitious for their children. First, they were ambitious for their husbands, and then my, my, my father wasn't particularly interested. But my mother was ambitious for her children. Unfortunately, it was a sexist era, and my sister, who was older, didn't benefit from that ambition. But I did. And um, I was good at school. And I was extremely sensitive, and still strangely am, although <laughs> that is not the way the world reads me, and that's been purpose. I have a carapace that has developed over time. Uh, but my, my sister, uh, and um, when I was a kid, just very briefly, I won't belabor this more than it needs to be belabored. When I was a kid, I didn't, I noticed Brooklyn, right, a kid. When I was a child, uh, I didn't speak. And the only speaking I could do was that I, um, some incomprehensible language, and my sister could translate for me. My mother believed that I was dumb. She believed that I was actually uh, backward. And so what she did, in order to this typical Ellen Fazio typey thingy, my mother decided she was gonna give me a crash course in cultural enrichment. 
So she started to take me to museums. And then there was a moment, I don't need to go into the details because that's not what this interview is about, but there was a moment when in fact everyone realized that I wasn't dumb. In fact, I was quite the opposite. And we still went to museums, but we went to museums with a totally different attitude. It was like, um, I knew the world. Like, I could tell the world. It's getting me a little kind of overwhelmed because I'm thinking about my mother in that event. But um, yeah, no, I knew the world. And so until about seven, for two years, from about five to seven, that's what I did. So that was my background. And um, then very early on, I tired of the Italian American way of life and the kind of xenophobia and stuff like that. And so when I was about 17 years old, um, uh, I had kind of failed out of college. That's a longer story, but I failed, I failed, kind of failed out. I was not so much that I failed, I was told to leave nicely. And um, I never went home. I left then, I went, I went to Europe. I lived in Europe for a while. I worked on Wall Street. I worked in the post office. And uh, finally when I was in the post office, it hit me that I was never gonna do this kind of work for my life. So I went back to Brooklyn College. It was during the student revolutions and I participated in them. And uh, also strangely resisted them. That's another story altogether. And lo and behold, I wound up through the good graces of a professor I had named Michael Mallory, who I had the pleasure of speaking at his uh, funeral. Uh, I, he stopped me one day walking out of Baroque art class. And he said to me, what are you gonna do with your life? And uh, I said, I really was planning to go live in Europe at that point. And um, I said, you know, I don't know. And his, he said, well, you know, um, I have a friend at Columbia, I'm gonna call him. It was actually because I had pointed things out on a, on a building that he was teaching that he hadn't realized. And he was like, this kid, I don't know where this kid gets this, but it's his, like he knows. Anyway, that was my Columbia career. I was a, gr a miserable graduate student, <laughs> miserable. I was completely unprepared. I had no idea. And everyone there was some Wellesley and Yale and blah, 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 blah. And I was in Brooklyn College. And I was a little bit like the, uh, well, I was a little out of fish out of water. And um, I didn't have any money. So I depended on the university to support me which it did, and then kind of in my second year, I got it. And I didn't want to leave New York because I had met the woman who was going to become my wife. She was in New York, still is my wife. Uh, and she's from Hot Springs, Arkansas. Very Columbia story. <laughs> And uh, yeah, like I, I so I, the College Writers Association was in New York. I'm like, I'm going to apply for jobs in New York. I want to I wanna stay in New York. So I did. And lo and behold, one of them was Sarah Lawrence College. It was Hunter College. There was a second, which I don't remember. And then it was Sarah Lawrence. And uh, yeah, that changed, that changed my life more than anything. Meeting Elizabeth and coming here was one of those events. And you know, I've, been getting, I've gotten so many breaks along the way. And it wasn't because, it was really because people try, were trying to be fair. And that's why it makes me very sad now. There seems to be a reaction against that. 
Because, like, my response to all of those attempts to just try to be fair, he's a working class kid, no college in his family, uh, a student by the standards of the people who were going to Columbia Art History School. Everyone, art history is not a field where you find people like me, you know? And all along the way, People gave me a break, and I, I am nothing but grateful. Anyway, um, I can talk about with Sarah Lawrence here. Yes, so I was interested. Like, so did someone make a call to Sarah Lawrence? Did you see a posting? How did I you... I saw the posting yeah. at the College Art Association. I saw a posting for a college in Bronxville, and every, you know, everyone knows Sarah Lawrence. I mean, there's no, you know. I had a vain impression. In fact, to show you how ridiculous Columbia was at that point, <laughs> They, they warned me not to take the, the job, like not to do the interview. They warned me because they thought that A, it would eat me alive, which happily it did. <laughs> and B, there was all of this craziness surrounding the college that, you know, people were homophobic and it was known that this was a safe place, right? And it freaked the shit out of the Columbia faculty to the point where, like, a straight guy shouldn't interview there. So response number one is, how straight am I really, right? I mean, I was kind of out of nowhere, so they didn't know shit, uh, pardon me, didn't know anything about me. And number two, so what? I've always been the fish out of water. What's the big deal? They get Columbia, I'm comfortable? <laughs> ha! You know, so I did the interview. I did the interview with no expectations. Just thinking, I had just gotten back from Paris where I was doing my dissertation research. And um, Do you remember who was on your commit? Who was on the interview committee? Oh, That's yeah. a big question. <laughs> oh yeah, I can remember. Persis Charles, Dale Harris. So Persis came in, and I did not know this, but Persis, who had done her PhD at University of Michigan, had done her MA in art history. And she and I talked, I was really interested in, in those days in what was an esoteric field, and one which, by the way, served me very well at Sarah Lawrence, which is I was interested in the intersection of complex theoretical questions with material objects. That's the only way to put it. Now that's the modern way to put it. But when I was into it, it was like, objects speak in a different way than the language of simplicity. Objects speak in a complex way. And it's my job to understand kind of the ripples that an object puts in the world. You know what I mean? Like yes. ripples out from it. So that ripples, you know, so that things are not quite, they are what they are and they are received as other, and they are more importantly in the world as others. So these three kind of things, and I always had some bizarre philosophical turn. I can't tell you where it comes from. Honest to God, like people tell me the most complex ideas, and you know, this sounds like self-congratulations, which kind of it is, thank you. <laughs> uh, they tell me the most complex ideas, and I, can get, I get them, like right away. Like the mathematicians explain stuff to me, and I go like, Oh, sure, but did you look at that? And they're like, wow, did you study mathematics? I was like, nah, 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 nah. but they're like, dude, that's obvious, right? You can see that. It's weird, it's weird, it's weird. But it stood me in very good stead and in the sense that came to Sarah Lawrence and she and I spent time talking about the theory of the French Academy in the 17th century. 
And, you know, I, as you probably have figured out by now, in the first 10 minutes of this interview, I have a lot to say. And, uh, you know, Persis and I got really along. Then Dale Harris rolled in, and I did not know. Did, have you ever, anyone ever mentioned Dale Harris? Okay. We're shaking our heads no. <laughs> uh, Dale Harris taught in the literature department here. He was the first out gay faculty member that I'm in, I knew here, probably anywhere, frankly. And uh, Dale, I didn't, unbeknownst to me, Dale was also a ballet critic for the Manchester Guardian, now The Guardian. And he was also, he taught Baroque uh, art and architecture at Cooper Hewitt. So he had all these gigs that he did on the side. He has his own fascinating backstory. Um, if you ever want to hear it, the person who knows best is Jeff Adams. Anyway, uh, so Dale rolls in and Dale sits down and says to me, kind of the equivalent of, darling, tell me about Baroque architecture, particularly in Piedmont. So I mentioned the most prominent architect, a man named Guarino Guarinini. Guarino Guarinini, who did the Santa Sindona and a bunch of buildings there, whatever. So Dale looks at me and goes, well, you would pick the obvious one. <laughs> and I laughed. I was like, yeah, that's right, because I don't really know a lot about Piemonte. Like, I, just, I know my thing, which is this kind of weird French theoretical thing I do, but, like, whatever. You know, like, thank you, Dale. So I thought that was the end of it. And I interviewed with Philip Gould, who was on the department, and Mary Delahoy. But that, that actually didn't go anywhere, I thought. I don't know. So I was tired of not having a regular job because I'd worked kind of all my, all my life. And I was tired of being a graduate student. I had a young wife, and she had a little stipend from home, but not a lot, and, you know, that kind of thing. So I was looking for a job. And so if, it, if that job didn't, if I didn't get a job that year, I would probably have gone to the commercial world in some way, shape, or form. Who knows? Anyway. I bumped into Phil Gould, who was the chair of the department on Broadway, because Phil lived up on Broadway. I lived up on Broadway. I bumped into Phil. And uh, Phil said to me, um, how you doing? Oh, yeah, whatever. Very avuncular, you know? And I was like, I'm fine. He said, now, if you get another job offer, you call me. I don't know. I, like, I, I can be clueless. <laughs> And I was clueless. I didn't know what that meant. You know, I thought, oh, how nice. Like, he's just being nice, right? I go home. I get the flu. I'm in bed. Knocked out. Somebody calls me. It's a woman named Allison Baker. And Allison Baker says to me, would you like to teach at Sarah Lawrence College? Your salary is $14,500 a year. I was like, what? Do what? <laughs> and just two anecdotes that I want to add to this. Number one, when I was sitting in the pub waiting for my interview, I thought to myself, because I'd gone to Brooklyn College and it taken seven years to get out as an undergraduate, and Brooklyn College was in those days strictly a commuter college and whatever. And I thought to myself at Sarah Lawrence, I heard people talking about things like Poe, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that. And I was like, this is what college is supposed to be like. And frankly, it's never disappointed me. 
This is exactly what college is supposed to be like. Maybe not every college, but that thank God there's one. You know? Yes. Just thank God there's one. And this is it. And I was like, holy shit, how did this happen? That I wound up here. Number two, I had the worst dressed advisory committee in history. <laughs> I had Sam Siegel, Harold Axe, who never wore socks, and Ed Kogan. And Ed was a heart. He was a deer. He was a mathematics guy. He had a stroke, but was all there and taught mathematics brilliantly for a long time here and actually performed in the faculty show. Anyway, along the short of it was he, them, uh, that was the committee, and I called up Elizabeth after. And I, 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 my father taught me one, I learned a lot from my father. I have now, after years of analysis, found out that I've learned a lot from my father. <laughs> but one of the things I did learn is you always dress up which is something I've done at the college pretty much for 45 years. Yes. And um, I, I, I called up Elizabeth. I said, there was not even a leather shoe in the whole place. Like, what kind of place is this? Sarah Lawrence. Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, I didn't really mean that seriously. I meant it kind of as a joke, like, you know, how am I going to fit in? And, you know, eventually I did. Yeah, that's my uh, coming-of-age story, if you must know. Well, I'm glad we do. Um, so you gave us, I think, I was going to ask your first impressions, but like that, that's your first impression sort of of like what the college was like as an outsider. Yes. You arrive, you get on campus. What do you do first week? What's it feel like? What are you doing? Oh, Who are you meeting? The, well, actually, the first week I was on campus, as I remember, I was in Bates Tower, and there was this extraordinary woman who made me feel like I was back in, like so small that I was back in Brooklyn, Hannah Zawadzka. And Hannah was Polish, beautiful beyond belief, and just very Bosnian. She later became a banker, like totally like, Yo, you find your level, you know? Like, I mean, this was mine and that was ours. I'm like, totally good with that. So that was one introduction to the faculty. She was new, too, and we got along very well. Uh, and then, you know, the art history faculty were decent, very decent people. Mary Delahoy, Phil Gould, who, you know, was, was in his own little quirky way a very decent man. And anyway, the long and short of it, it was, you know, people were kind of receptive. And I later realized that I got the job for two reasons. Uh, the first one was by contrast, that some of the people they'd had before me were not as outgoing and actually didn't enjoy sharing ideas the way I did. Like, I've never, ever, ever kept a good idea to myself. <laughs> I just don't. You know, that's just my thing. And, and it's... And it, Maybe it's been good for the teaching. I don't know, but that it was very that was very true. And then you know, I worked a six day week because I worked four days a week here and then two days at home, getting ready for the four days here. I taught at night. I had a night class uh, that was required of me at that point. Excuse me. And. Um, I commuted by train, 
except when I was part of a carpool. And I would say that what is lost today a little bit is the value of the Upper West Side carpools for, for socializing young faculty. Because we all lived on, in Manhattan. None of us could afford a house yet. You know, the, young, the guys who had come right before us had been beneficiaries of a college that used to have a mortgage program. Mm. And Bill Park's a good example. Bill Park owned a house in Bronxville, if you can imagine, right? from the college. He took his mortgage from the college. And in those days, it was like a 2% mortgage. I mean, it was like nothing. And the houses were $150,000. And Bill, uh, and he was kind of the tail end of it. And that ended, I believe, two years before I came. So I came in 1978. First, that ended with college benefits used to be amazing, even though the pay was for nothing. And that's kind of still the deal here. But um, the college mortgage thing ended, and then we used to have our, our health insurance with TIA Craft, which was a very good insurer. And you know that ended too, because they got out of the business, they no longer thought of it as a, as a valuable part of the business. Anyway, the long and short of it is, that was kind of the experience, right? The Sarah Lawrence experience was uh, involving all of that. Um, Anyway, so my first week was, you know, I was busy. <laughs> I was completely and totally busy. And I, um, you know, I, that's, that's what I did. How, um, I think the thing that's always striking about people think of teachers and they're like, teachers don't do that much work. They, they're in their classes, they work like six hours a week, right? I mean, I think how prepared were you for that, the, the fact that fa faculty is never off? Right, the academic mind yeah. is always on. Yeah. It's a constant workload. Um, I, um, I wasn't, right? Like at the, I, I simply wasn't. Um, and frankly, um, only with time did I come to enjoy it. Initially, I kind of resented it. But I, I also realized that I was never going to be the guy with the green, you know, with the yellow lecture notes. You know, that's not the way my mind worked. I was always revising. My cards were being rewritten. I had these kind of big note cards that I had my lectures on. So, you know, I was working really, really hard. And conference work, um, you know, demands a certain preparation. I mean, some of it, no, right? Like, somebody wants to work on Michelangelo, I'm like, yo, I know that like the back of my hand, you know? And that was because that was the other dissertation topic I had considered was working on um, Michelangelo's followers in Rome in the like 1550s, 1560s, because he did never had a studio, so he had these guys who were just kind of like hangers on. <laughs> anyway, the long and short of it is, I, you know, I kind of wasn't ready for it. But it was funny because both Elizabeth and I, that's right, were in the process of learning, doing something complex at that point. She was learning hieroglyphs. I mean, she's originally, I don't know if you know about the Baxter and my wife, no? Okay, so quick story. My wife uh, is now a Broadway producer. That's what she does. Wow. She was originally, and I mean, she's not a big money producer because I have no money and she has no money, but she is kind of the person who puts the thing together. 
Like she's what would be called in Hollywood an executive producer. Yeah. However, when I met her, she was an archaeology student and a dedicated one. And to tell you the absolute truth, the academic in the family is my wife. The teacher in the family is me. The academic in the family is Elizabeth. It's a really important distinction. Yeah, you know? And so that, that's kind of the way it works. You know, it worked. And uh, right, so my, so my wife Elizabeth was, you know, working hard and learning hieroglyphs and, you know, did, kind of keeping up on her field. And she wrote a brilliant dissertation on Syrian cylinder seals. I don't need to go into that. But suffice it to say, um, we were both working hard. So, you know, we were a young couple living on a rent control apartment on the Upper West, you know, yeah, right, exactly, on the Upper West Side, right across from Columbia on 120th Street. And um, it was working, you know? I had a salary and the apartment was 250 bucks a month and we were in business, baby, you know? She was still getting 400 from home and yes. we, were, we were doing fine. So. Yeah, no, I worked, I worked hard. And, I, and you know what's funny, this, my, my career here had, had like, so the first kind of arc of it was from 78 to 90. There are ups and downs. There's a hand movement that's showing up and down yeah, that you're all missing. Thank you. <laughs> so there was a period between 90 and around 2000. That was, I don't need to go into the details, suffice it to say that I had health issues and it was, a, it, it was hard to keep the thing going. But I never missed a day of work. I always showed up and did all that. Whatever, whatever. The interesting thing happened to me in 20, 2001. Um, first of all, it was the beginning of student reviews of courses. I generally don't pay any attention to them. Sorry, guys. But I got, I got, rate your professors kind of came out at about that time. Yeah. And I got, and I, you know, I, I have a, somewhat fragile, but nonetheless, seemingly big ego. So I didn't like negative reviews in my classes. And I taught a Renaissance lecture, and it was and I knew it, but what, I, what was happening was, we were making the transitions from slides to PowerPoint, and I just didn't know how to do it yet. You know what I mean? So I, it was redundant, you know what I mean? Like I, I was using all of this different information in a way, in a format that I didn't understand. Yeah. And it was bad. And I got a very thoughtful review, and I don't remember the young person's name, but it was a student of Lita Sizer's, uh, a woman from Alaska. And I got a very thoughtful, negative review of my course. Those are special. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And man, did I take it to heart. I really took it to heart. I, um, I just thought, you got to get, you know, you're, you're dealing with this new medium. You don't really know much about it. You don't have, you haven't really done the work figuring out what's important or how you want to do this. You haven't done that. And I just kind of woke up. You know, I woke up. And I was like, you got to go back to work. There's no other way around this. And I did. And it, it, was, it was all the difference. It made the last 20 years of my career as meaningful as the first 10. 
why did I guess how did you come across that review then you didn't really think I started about looking I was like you know narcissistic me like oh baby I'm gonna get great reviews I'm gonna feel good about myself blah blah blah, blah. and I didn't I got a you know I got I, mean, I got look there were mean girls I don't mean that to be gender specific they're just people who got like whatever they got that they avoided me because they knew that I was not a I wouldn't put up with a lot of you know stuff from them but the truth was you know every once in a while you get one and that happened I had a strange woman who did strange stuff anyway that that's you can dismiss well, when somebody takes the time to think about you know Dr. Forte gives very good feedback on papers but you know and then the butt resonates with you. You got to take that seriously. I mean, I went to bed for three days, you know. But the funny thing was, given who I am, my background and all that, and you know, not having a great undergraduate education, which I interestingly enough later learned was part of a legend that had developed around me at Brooklyn College. It's very strange. Um, what is the, are you going to tell us the legend? Well, very simply, I was the wild colonial boy who I had let, it became, I didn't know this. I'm in a, an elevator, quick story, I'm in an elevator uh, on West End Avenue, uh, on Riverside Drive, Riverside Drive, and I'm coming down the elevator, and there's a guy in the elevator, and his name is Lonnie Beer, and Lonnie Beer teaches at Brooklyn College, and uh, I'm in the elevator, coming from a party, and it's for ancient Near Eastern archaeologists, my wife's world. Okay, cool. So... Hi, Lon you know, I'm Lonnie Beer. Hi, I'm Joe Forte. He went like this. He literally went like this. <laughs> You're Joe Forte? And I was like, yeah, I'm Joe Forte. He said, You're the famous Joe Forte. It turned out that at Brooklyn College, the story of Joe Forte had become like a legend in the art history department. That, you know, there was this like wild kid who was just kind of really smart, and he, we got him into Columbia, and he wound up being kind of ten, we don't have titles here or whatever, but you know, kind of like department chair at Sarah Lawrence, and who'd have thunk it? Like, something must have worked, you know? It was, it was a really strange experience. So I've always, been a little bit the wild colonial boy, and I've always also taken it to heart when I thought I was failing. I really did, and when I thought I thought I was failing at that point, I thought I was failing the college. I thought I was failing myself, and more importantly, I was failing my students. And even though it was one review, it was one kid that I respected. I knew she knew what she was doing, and I was like, man. You gotta get it. You gotta get the game back together, dude. So that's what happened. I got called back to my vocation, if you will, and um, it made all the difference. It, it was gratifying. You know what I found most interesting, Christina, Tim? It was deeply gratifying for me. Not because I was popular again, but because I knew I was doing a good job. So I feel like this is a good moment then to, to transition slightly and talk about more about your teaching, which is to say, like, you, you had a teaching philosophy. Yep. At that moment, you had to reconsider both your teaching philosophy and your teaching style. Yep. Um, can you talk about your teaching philosophy and how it's developed over yes. time? Yes, yeah, happily. 
Um, my take philosophy is pretty is pretty simple, um, and it's partially Sarah Lawrence specific, though maybe not. You teach to the best, and everyone else keeps up. But you define the best as literally kind of like in the old Marxist sense of everyone to their own skills. So it's your duty as a Sir Lawrence professor to first of all learn what that is. You have to learn what these kids do well. What do they do well? What do they do poorly? Um, where can I meet them halfway? But if you're true, if, if that's true for you, then every one of them is good enough to get in here and everyone is good enough to be taken seriously. That's number one. So I always believe that. Number, uh, that's simple as that. Number two, art history is a very strange discipline for a very simple reason. I teach 10 works in one week that are as important as novels that Iliowak spent six months on. That's just art history. Sistine Chapel is richer than major 19th century novels. There's no two ways about it. That means that I, I never freaked out about taking two weeks to teach that. I just never did. And that made me different than a lot of my colleagues at other institutions who you know, had to keep to the rhythm of it. And number three is something that my students taught me almost immediately when I came here, which is I, you can't judge anybody. You can't just figure out who's gonna like make it with your information. I had a student who's an extraordinary woman now is famous, famous, famous. Her name, is Chi, her name is Chi Perlman. She's the head of TED Talks for art and design. She's a big deal. I loved her. Her human, she, she adopted me. She was a junior and I was this first year. And that's the way she treated me. And I was okay. She knew more about the college than I did. She couldn't write a lick. I didn't know why. I didn't really care. I worked with her what she did best, which is visual stuff. That's what she did best. She was good at, really good at that. And great in class and sweet and decent. You know, well, not a human being, you know? Okay. I thought, man, I, I, don't, I don't know what she's going to do when she gets out. And she just went ahead and became a magazine editor that won all kinds of awards and da da da, da and this and that. And, and she taught me almost immediately almost immediately that you give every student the same effort. You're gonna like some better than others. You're going to like to, you're gonna wanna be with some kids in conference differently than you're gonna wanna be with others. You know what? Like, get over it. Just give yourself to them. And that's the best you can do. That's, and the teaching philosophy is teach to a high level, Spend the time on major works that you need to spend, and every person is a discovery, and you have to find within that discovery um, how it is you can teach them, meet them, you know. 
it's it's interesting because I feel like earlier you were talking about you're, you weren't going to be that professor with yellowed lecture notes, yeah. right? Yeah. And it sounds like part of what you're describing also is like you have to learn. I guess I'm just repeating what you were saying. <laughs> you yeah. have to learn what the strengths of each class is in yes. order to teach to the best. Yes. Therefore, you have to be reviewing how you're approaching the material at every single Absolutely. Turn. And there were some kids who were like, I would, I would create, I started to create new curriculums around the idea that, okay, I can, this is what I can do best. This is what our students need. Um, I developed that architecture curriculum out of nothing, zero. I came here and I was like, Sarah Lawrence doesn't have any architecture. Like, yep. well, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna teach it. And, you know, I did. So it was pretty, I guess, is that a teaching philosophy? I don't know, but that's kind of the way I, you know, very pragmatically went about it. And, um, and also, I, I learned so much, so much from that process. The building of the curriculum. Yeah, that was the thing that became my focus. I, um, early on I published some and I continued to work in the field. Uh, I'm certainly not a major recognized scholar in my field, but people kind of know that when they have a kind of crazy idea they can come to me and I can help them figure it out. Like that's kind of where I am in it, you know what I mean? So that's me, um, but yeah. Yeah, you know, my, that curriculum development was my field. So what do you remember what you said, this is what is needed, this is what I'm seeing in the students. You know, that is a teaching philosophy, I think. Seeing it's a, teach, it's a service philosophy as well, right? Yeah. What does this institution need? Right. How can I use my strengths to contribute yeah. to it? Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you see that wasn't happening that you wanted to fill in? The, the world of art history was changing, and the faculty here didn't know it. And, and um, that's as much as I think I can say about it. And how it was changing, it was just beginning to take the linguistic turn. And then for those of you who don't know what the linguistic turn is, inspired by French structuralists and post-structuralist philosophy, uh, many of the humanities began to turn away from the idea of kind of empirical research toward this more theoretically informed idea that every particular form of expression is a language. And then it's, it has more qualities of linguistic structure like, you know, verbs and nouns and adverbs. Then it necessarily has its own self-contained series of um, predicates. Paintings are beautiful. Okay, what does that mean? You know, and so there's lots of ways that one can unpack that both linguistically and philosophically, and that's what I was like, oh man, nobody's teaching this. This is like trilling in the English department and yeah. kind of museum-inspired empiricism in the art history department, and I'm like, nobody's talking about this stuff, so hey, I'm gonna do the architecture stuff, and this is what I'm gonna talk about. I'm gonna talk about this kind of approach to architecture. So that's kind of why I felt like I should. I thought also that I believe that our kids should do better in graduate school for a very simple reason. They may not know the date of every building, but man, if you give them an idea, they can do a lot with it. And that's, that was a point of pride for me. 
So I figured they had to be informed so that when they went into these places, right, and you, they heard an idea and the professors were talking about these ideas, they were like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. I've heard that before. And that, that's what I felt was my role. So in terms of college structure, um, can you talk a little bit about the structure of the institution that also gave you kind of the support to kind of develop a curriculum like that? Yeah, it left me alone. (laughs) It left me alone, and I appreciated that deeply. It asked me, I mean, every once in a while, you know, during my trough, um, Barbara Kaplan and I would have a conversation. Barbara Kaplan, dean of the college. Yeah, dean of the college. And and, and totally appropriate, you know. Would kind of limp off, fine. Uh, but truth be told, I, um, yeah, I, I just felt that the college's strength was letting me do what I wanted until it, there was some issue that I needed to address. And then they were very straightforward and decent in informing me. I never got like a screed, you know. I was like, they were like, Joe, you need to do this. And I was like, fine, I can do that. I mean, you know, and I'm very sorry if I'd screwed up here. And they were like, cool, don't worry about it. You're, you're good. You know, we know you're dedicated. We know what you want to you do. So, you know, I was very lucky in that way. Um, number two, and I know this is going to sound shocking to a lot of people, but it's not, believe me, I have friends at other institutions, and I can tell you, by and large, we're pretty politics-free here. Now, I know that's surprising to hear, but it's like, compared to whom is the real question? And the answer is compared to a lot of places. Compared to a lot of places, we are drama-free. You know, yeah, you know, we don't get paid enough to live in the New York area. Okay, whatever, the college is poor. You know, I, don't, I say that in a cavalier way, but you get my point, yeah. you know. There are certain givens that have always been givens. And so when I hear debates until the year I left about different conditions, blah, 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 and then I've heard 45 years we've been trying to do the right thing. Okay, great. But more importantly, I've been left alone to develop my curriculum. And um, I have been respected by the administration of every, to the point where I have actually gotten into um, discussions with deans and presidents of a certain vigor and it's always been bygones or bygones you know it's like it's over when it's finished and I shake hands and they shake hands with me and we're good it's just the way it works here I think and I've always appreciated that generosity and thought of it as a kind of defining characteristic You, you offer it to your students and the administration offers it to you so speaking about this generosity then from the other side, as you have worked on many committees and served on many committees in your time here, can you talk a little bit about yeah. being the person who maybe can't leave someone alone all of the time or Pardon maybe who can't leave someone alone all of the time or being the person on the committees making those decisions well, and how yeah, that shifted yeah, perspectives? Yeah, I, well, I never doubted any, well, two things. I was on a lot of committees. One thing about committees at Sarah Lawrence, that I shall be frank with right at the beginning. A lot of them are constituted to avoid a problem. <laughs> and, and I mean that in the nicest way. Because in many ways, the problem is so big and it's so fundamentally difficult that enabling a consensus around how to deal with it is 
uh, to my mind, in my experience, virtually impossible. So I have been on committees like that, where there's a giant elephant in the room <laughs> that nobody wants to talk about. And that's, uh, you know, I'm fr I get frustrated with that. That's not my personality. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I'm like, let's do something. Oh, I want to do something. Um, so I've been on those committees. Then I've been on other, other kinds of committees. The other kinds of committees I've been on, there have been things I've enjoyed. So let's start with that. I loved being department chair. Loved it. I'm group leader, whatever the hell the title is. Excuse me. Uh, and I've, we've always had good ones. Always. Like never, ever, ever have I been in the humanities group and had a, a really bad experience. There were a few, and I shall not name names, but they got straightened out when certain people left. And that was cool, and it was fine. And I really, really liked that. I liked doing that. Because uh, I was one for about 10 years. Um, secondly, and what was it about that that you liked? Can you talk, I mean, the camaraderie. We're all in this together. You know, we're all, deeply respectful of what we try to do. And for better or worse, I'm sorry, I'm, not, I'm just trying to be honest, I'm not narcissistic. I'm funny at meetings. I'd like to fuse stuff by laughter. And I'm, more importantly, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm not a big lunchroom guy. There's a whole story about that that I don't want to go into, but <laughs> I'm not a big lunchroom guy, fine. So when I go into a humanities division meeting, group meeting, whatever we're called now, um, these are people I really like I haven't seen in a while. You know, it's like goof around with them. You know, Phil Svoboda has the greatest laugh in America. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Roy Ben Shy. Like, I got off a few witticisms that knocked him out of his chair. I was so pleased I couldn't believe it. You know, I made Roy Ben Shy laugh. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of thing that I enjoyed, and I enjoyed that, and I also enjoy, enjoyed like when uh, it was, there were brass tacks conversations. We didn't always get along, but we always had this kind of deep respect for each other, and it was really something that I deeply appreciated. And um, and and when I stopped being chair, um, the division kind of broke up. It was interesting. We went through. That was a kind of weird time in the in the college. And about what year was that? Oh, I'd say 95, 96, somewhere around there. It was a very strange situation. Um, the one thing I regret, there, there was one thing I regret at Sarah Lawrence. Well, I regret two things, but I've already talked about the one kind of indirectly, which was my 10-year trough. Okay. There, was, there wasn't stuff that I, that would, I was sick and I, there was not a lot I could do. And I was actually, and actually it was, it was a mental thing and I was very late, I was very honored to be the senior speaker twice. On the second time I spoke about it and I was very honest. I was like, you know, I know we all go through, and I went through 10 years of it and I have to tell you that, you know, there's hope. You come out the other side. You got to work at it. You got to keep showing up. You got to do what you do, but you know, you come out. Okay. The second regret is I was never on advisory. That's an interesting regret to have. Um, yes, uh, it, maybe it is. There was a time in my life where it was the right thing for me to do. 
Not later, not now. Like at the last five years, people have been very interested in me running for advisory. And I, I, I just thought it wasn't the right time for me to do it. But there was a time. And for circumstances, complicated circumstances, it didn't work out. Somebody else won. And everybody was surprised. I mean, I had people come over to me and go, you, know, you didn't win the election? I was like, no, I didn't. And I know why. And I, it was not a big deal in that sense. I knew why, and it was that. But it was a regret that I really, really had. What was it about that committee that you feel you wanted to contribute? Um, two things, one of which is the committee itself, and secondly, its long-range impact. The committee itself det determines the future of the college more than any other single committee. It's not financial. It's who do you hire? And that makes the most important difference in the whole thing. Um, the second thing is you have a different relationship with the administration when you serve on that committee. After you've served on that committee, you know the administration as people because they serve with you in the most honest way that you can, right? First of all, you see, your fa you see the faculty f for kind of who they are. And I can handle that, you know, that doesn't bother me. So I, it was that, and during my trough, you know, that used to annoy me, that I knew that people who had been on an advisory had all kinds of backdoor conversations, and that was, but, but I accepted it as a structural problem. I didn't accept it as a personal one. I didn't think of it as like, oh my God, you know, they're leaving me out. No, 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 no. I was like, if you serve on a committee, where? Kind of the hirings and firings are life and death, in a bizarre way, right? It's the life and death of the college. Um, of course you have a bond. And I was never privy to that. And that saddens me. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that, sure. Yes. Um, then I think to shift away from committees then, if sure. you were good with that, um, let's think about Sarah Lawrence a little bit more writ large, and then we can come back to maybe some details about things. Sure, um, be one. So what, so you feel like you didn't get to contribute to advisory in that way, but ideally, how, how do you feel like you'd like to be remembered? A hundred years ago, people are looking, <laughs> even years from now, people are looking back, they're doing research in our archives, they're talking about the development well, of the college. Of, right, I, so <laughs> I do have, a certain notion of this, which is, I'd like to, I'd like to be remembered as a person who wore a great deal of learning lightly, and tried to demonstrate to my students that that was possible. You know, um, and that there's joy in that. I was happy, and I am happy to have been in a place where that was possible, you know? So that's number one. Number two, I would like to be remembered for my long participation in the now defunct faculty show. <laughs> yes, you've anticipated me. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I really, um, I really felt that the faculty show was an instrument for good, all the way around. 
So can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on the faculty First show? First of all, and your I participation? worked there. So the faculty show was something that had existed off and on intermittently at the college since the 1930s. Um, and it used to be written when I arrived here in 1978. It had been, it was for a few years, it had been written almost exclusively by Charles DiCarlo, who was then president of the college. Charles wrote the show. And um, it was fun. And I, I, everyone told me that, hey, we have a faculty show. We do a faculty show. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess I'll be part of the faculty show. So I wrote my own song. I wrote a song to a parody of Sam Siegel, um, where shopping bag and all. It, it was to my funny Valentine. And the point of the song was exactly the point of my funny Valentine, right? That, that you know, Sam is a kind of beloved human being. And the way the funny Valentine, you know, is your figure less than Greek? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. Like, that was fun. That's funny. Sam yes. is thing. So the, I did the faculty show. And um, I loved it. What was it about, and I think I can guess a little bit, you've talked a lot about camaraderie and trust, but can you talk a little bit more about that experience and do you have another favorite memory from participating oh, in that Oh gosh, I have so many. <laughs> I can't even go into them. I mean, I, every picture that you sent me that had a faculty show, I could remember precisely what we were doing when that picture was made. I really can. So what is it about the faculty show? It, I think you touched on it earlier, Christina, when you, at least in my attitude, how teaching is service. I thought the faculty show is a kind of service. And um, if you do a good job with it, meaning you, uh, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll define that in different ways at different times. Um, it, it's, it's the, it is a service the seniors leave with a different sense of their last years here. Their last year here, their last month here. You know, they do. The faculty gives them something. So that I always thought was great. Number two, teaching at Sarah Lawrence is performative in the sense that you're constantly on. You know what I mean? Like other places, you give your lecture, you go to your office, you collapse, you're there for an hour, one kid shows up, bam, you're home. That's the way it works. You're constantly on at Sarah Lawrence. And you have to get yourself ready. And so in the strange way, the faculty show, to my mind, flowed directly from the whole teaching philosophy. It didn't surprise me that this place had a faculty show. And that, you know, people performed and they were performers. And then I had a gold mine of performance. <laughs> gold like people who just you know, Bella Brodsky, I mean, came from a nightclub background and wanted to be a chanteuse, and I was like, you, you're gonna get to be a chanteuse. I'm gonna write songs for you so you can do that, you know? And Jerry Lynn and Jerry Lynn Dodds, my colleague in art history, and, um, <laughs> and I used to write songs like Al Green. So I knew Al Green could sing. And 
I knew the kind of song that Al could sing with his voice. So I wrote a parody of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And Al, I Can't Get No Late Extension. And Al was singing about how kids come to him like, you know, like a day before graduation <laughs> and they're like, oh, my, 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 my. I can't get no, you know, you can't get no late extension. And it was just like dynamite. For a while I wrote theme musicals. So I wrote like more miserable. <laughs> and that was based on Les Miserables. Can you hear the marching feet? Those are the feet of freshman men. <laughs> you know, when the college make a real effort to draw men into the college without having to compromise our values, right? Like, so, I mean, I would write parody songs that were apropos and try to get songs also that, about um, seniors, that were, things that were specific to that senior class, what they had gone through. So I wrote a song about smoking. Um, to um, to the song in Hamilton, uh, they'll be back. They'll be back. Da, da, da. You know that song. I wrote a song on smoking where I was. I played at the character No Smoking, and got to ham it up a bit. <laughs> so, anyway, and I understand that generations come and go, and. My generation was willing to do it a little bit more than others. And then I had wonderful colleagues to work with. Uh, Shirley Kaplan, Dave McCree. You know, they were, they were just great to work with. It was fun. For a while, I considered like doing a theater degree here. You know, uh, in the end, it didn't happen. Because my career took a different turn, right? I, I, I turned toward this more academic more intellectual way, but you know, it was, uh, it was tremendous fun. And the seniors, and then there was the senior dance under the tent, and I don't know, I think I can share this now. Uh, my mother, the wonderful Ellen Fazio, was a semi-professional jitterbug dancer. And in the 40s, so cool. and I never was ashamed to dance. Never, never once. And I still, still will occasionally go out by myself and like to serious clubs and to just get down for an hour. So I, I kind of miss that. Well, no, I mean I, I mean, I think what you continue to share is like information about like trust and camaraderie at Sarah Lawrence and also you can't write a faculty show for colleagues or for a specific group of students unless you know them well. And I think what you continue to, to share is your sense of like a community here. That's that absolutely true. And I used to, one thing I always do, Christina and Tim, before I wrote a song is I used to ask them, what do you want to say? And that was the key thing I needed to know. You know, anyway. It was a very, very fun part of my time here. And anxiety provoking too, by the way. That was In what way? Yeah. Am I going to write it? Thank God, like for the two week spring break, <laughs> which we should never have gotten rid of, um, uh, because 
that's when I used to write the show. Uh, what's your writing process? And we can transition from the show to maybe your writing process more generally. I have to give the talk first. When, I, when it comes out of my mouth, I know what I think. Then as I, then the rest of the process is refining and developing. I can write, the, the, the problem I have as a writer is I am not a good long form writer. But I can give you 5,000 dynamite words on pretty much any work of art or architecture. And um, I'm in that kind of weird, the book I'm working on now, I'm working on a book now called 1648. And it's just the working title, but it's about kind of how art interacts with volatile environments. Anyway, the long and short of it is, uh, I, I, that's, I have to do it in the short form first. If I can do it in the short form first, then I can figure out what to do in the longer form. But I don't come with the idea of developing. David Castriota is a genius at the long form. A genius, I mean literally a genius. He can develop long form stuff out of anything. He's very, very good at it, knows how to do it. I am not that person. I'm the person for the short form stuff. So I, my writing process is basically, can I make a short form essay with a learned popular tone into a scholarly long form essay. And that's my writing process. My process is first I think it, then I say it, then I write it, it comes out in short form, and then I see if I can develop it into a long form. But my, I don't have the long, there are, my, like my wife is a scholar, she really is, because she really does, she could stick with, stick with things, you know? Me, I'm, there are hedgehogs and there are foxes. I don't know if you've heard that from Isaiah Berlin. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm a, a hedgehog knows one thing extremely well. I think it's a little unfair to hedgehogs, but let's say there are people who really take to the long form. Yeah. I'm a fox. I'm always into the next thing, which made me a good curricular developer. Because I was like, I, I would hear an idea and I was like, our kids have to know about that. And I could find a way. Yeah. But that's my, so that's, now you know my writing process. I was reading my dissertation recently because I had a, I want to self-publish it. Yes. And I was thinking, this is like, you, you wrote this whole thing, it's like 220 pages. Like it's, it's a study of a major monument in 220 lucid pages. Like, <laughs> why did you do this? And I was like, because you can't do anything else but this. This is all you can do. And it is all I can do. Well, you also, um, in addition to writing and teaching, yeah. um, you also curated a few exhibits during at the gallery during your tenure, Still Surreal in 1989, and Contemporary Drawing as an Idea in 1984. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to curation? Yes, I can. Thank you. <laughs> I remember those. Um, I'd actually, yeah, I wanted about four shows, and I would say um, 
I'm not a monographic type. Like I don't, I'm not interested in monographic. A lot of my field is monographic curatorial work, right? Like you're putting together like this unbelievably good show which just closed at the Met on Juan de Pareja. Great show, well done. Somebody in the Spanish department over there knows what they're doing. In fact, Jerry knows who it is because Jerry's the goddess of all things Spanish. And um, yeah, you know, that was it. My, my, my approach is very simple. Is there a way in which I can demonstrate the continuity of ideas that I have tried to develop in early modern painting and architectural culture. Can I demonstrate that in the contemporary world? So Still Surreal is fundamentally about how early modernism created a space for photographers in particular that allowed them to continue to work in ways that were not narrowly documentary. And that seemed to me to be an interesting problem, right? So, it, it, you know, the sequence of the events in art history when I was growing up in it was like style, 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 style. Somehow around 1980, it all broke down. And still surreal was an attempt to demonstrate that in photography, surrealism was an ongoing aspect of uh, photographic work. Um, even sometimes when it portended, and I didn't, I, I tried to stay away from the people for whom that was obvious, the grotesques like Diane Arbus and people like that. I tried to stay with David, uh, what's it, not David Witten, somebody else, but the last name is Witten, this uh, Czech. Anyway, I tried to stay away from those people because I thought, well, it's kind of obvious, but it's also got other elements that I don't want to touch on. But these were people whom, uh, Ruth Thorne Thompson, people who worked in interesting formats and did interesting things that clearly owed their um, concepts to surrealism. So that was that. Drawing as idea is a Renaissance idea. Right, that's the, con that's the notion of drawing in the Renaissance that's different than medieval workbooks. So I thought, you know, drawings have continued to be ideas. There are people who conceptualize through drawings. There are people who use drawings in different ways as models for the work that they do. In fact, one of the interesting things about it, uh, the Italian concept of drawings is that modelli is in fact a word for a drawing. It's a highly developed one, but it's nonetheless the word for drawing. So I was like, well, I want to show my students that when they're doing drawings, they're making ideas. So that was the thing behind that. Then the other ones were, I did a show on Venetian art, um, early modern Venetian drawings, something I had studied at Columbia, and I loved doing that show, loved doing it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I got a lot of good loans. I couldn't believe it. People were like, I, as long as I would pay for the framing, they'd give me whatever I wanted. And I was like, whoa. You know, is that how it works? So, yeah. And Paying for things that. is usually how it works. Yeah, that is the way. <laughs> I, that's, I kind of figured that out. Yeah. Then I kind of got in back into teaching, and the gallery was, was always a contested space. You know what I mean? Well, but it cost money that the college didn't have, and I understood that. And we never got the funding that we needed. Uh, Barbara Cohen was at one point at the trustee, the uh, present day, I think she's emeritus now, 
she um, had a nice little art collection, and so she actually had to put up money for the shows that made them better than they deserved to be. So, yeah, we were lucky. The gallery used to be a really big space. It was both floors of the uh, bookstore. It was downstairs and upstairs. So I needed, I did a really nice show on English prints, followers of uh, William Blake. That sounds great. Palmer, a bunch of really interesting printmakers who were kind of not really academically trained artists, but like following in Blake's footsteps, they took up engraving and things like that, you know, and they were very influenced by certain Baroque uh, printmakers who also had a kind of folkloric style, maybe is the best way to put it, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they were really interesting. They mostly were early 19th century, and there was a collection that one of the people over in development had, whom I knew and whose name I don't know now. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a very nice show, and that was upstairs while we had something else. Downstairs, which is a show I didn't do, but Mary did, on color, on single color painting. Nice. Robert Ryman, Marsha Hafif, you know, we've always had a good uh, art department here. We've always, haven't always had the best relationship between the art history and art department, but that thankfully was only momentary. So it's been a wonderful cooperative activity to work with them and to have somebody there like John O'Connor now and some of the younger people, uh, it's a great department. It's a great department. And it's an interesting thing, one editorial comment that I'd like to make. If you build a building, they will come. Building the Heimbolt changed everything. Building a new music building will change everything. It will make, it, it'll, it'll become different. It will become better. Building the Walters change, I can't even go into the ways that it changed things. And I, you think I would know better, right? Like I would know that that would happen. And I didn't. John Jaspers was the only guy who got it. I did not get it. I was on that committee and I was a lump. <laughs> you know? But it, it matters. I, I know like we all have our reservations about big money and higher education and you know, there's an obsession with endowment and all that. Maybe that's the ugly part of it. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, the gift shop in the museum. Like, you gotta have it, right? Okay, cool, whatever. But man, if you build the right building, your college will change, and change for the better. And as simple as that. Like, put money in your facilities. All right, end of editorial comment. Notice I recognized I was wrong by resisting this. <laughs> It's reflection and growth. Um, I mean, I was going to ask toward the end, but I mean, you've already talked about it a little bit. Like, what visions and hopes do you have for the future of the college? That it lasts forever. That it lasts in a recognizable form forever. That's the only hope I have. I, I can't. We serve people. 
we are a beacon. Education doesn't always serve the people um, that it pretends to serve. And we do. And we always put our money where our mouth is, man. You know, always. We, we promise students this, and I hope we continue to deliver it. Because it's, as I always have told people, like, um, you know, Sarah Lawrence is so strange, blah, 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 and I said, you know, man, thank God there's one. You don't have to be 20, doesn't have to be 50. It's gotta be one beacon where one, where you can be yourself, where no one's gonna crap on you for who you are, sorry, you know? And if there is one place like that, and one notion that that should exist, then we have done well. We have done well. And Dewey would be proud of us. You know? And I believe that. You know, the bottom of my the bottom of my heart, I believe that. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. Thank you to Christina and Joe for having this interview. If you'd like more from the SLC Library podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff, faculty, students, to tide you over until the next episode. Remember to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media, at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website, where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkl at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for sharing your time with us one and all. We look forward to doing it again next week.